growth is absolutely key. You know, if you sensed a bit of a kind of pause there from me, it's, it's because for a lot of companies, you know, the CEO, the founder is really the chief salesperson until they get through 10, maybe up to 10 million in turnover. And so you might be definitely hiring salespeople to give you leverage and maybe you call one of them a chief revenue officer, but, you know, the founder's driving it. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, I'm talking with and learning from Nick Brisbane. He is a serial founder of VC firms. He's the founding partner at Forward Partners, which has some rarity value. It's one of only a handful of VC firms in the UK that has IPO'd. So we talk a little bit about that journey and why they decided to IPO versus remain as a LLP. And um, what do Forward Partners do? Well, they invest in tech businesses. They are heavily involved in investing in or seeing startups in the generative AI space at the moment. They're an early stage investor, typically investing somewhere between half a million and a million pounds in a business that has sort of one to 40 staff. And we get into success ratios. I will often quote the figure that VCs expect to get it right one in 20 times. So we dig in with Nick about what he thinks his success and failure ratios are. And I was amazed by how in his business model, how often they expect to get it completely wrong. So that's great. Uh, we talk about what does he think a dream team looks like? In his words, it's sort of a founder and a chairman or a founder and a coach, which is great. And we talk about what they've got a proprietary framework called Kiddle, where we talk about competency, insight, drive, and leadership and what that means. We talk about hiring the first senior person in the organization other than the founding team, which is often sort of chief revenue officer, how to make that work. Great conversation with Nick and some good insight. I think for me, one of the things was to take some of the insights from this conversation about if you're not a startup business, you know, look, 4,000 decks he gets sent a year, they interview 400, they invest in 1% of the people that they meet incredible volume of startups and such a few number of uh, investments that they do. But I think taking Nick's business model and the success and failure ratios and thinking about applying that to internal innovation projects in your business, if you're not a startup and thinking, have we got the right stage payments? Have we got the right framework for having enough ideas? I think back to some of the earlier podcasts where we've talked with innovation leaders and innovation thought leaders and, and authors about some of the tools we can apply to try and whittle down the innovation. But it just seems to me, again, that the volume is important and then a way to whittle down and find value and find the quality to invest in. And then that investment to stage it so that we can kill projects that aren't working and put our time and effort and energy into some that could work. 
So fantastic conversation with Nick. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Uh, I'm Nick Brisbane, founder and CEO of Forward Partners. So we're an early stage VC based here in London. We invest in companies in applied AI, in Web3 and in marketplaces. And within applied AI, all the excitement at the moment, as is, is you probably won't be surprised to hear, is around generative AI and chat, all the kind of opportunities that are emerging from chat, GPT and similar technologies. Uh, we've been going for 10 years now at Forward. Prior to that, I was a founding partner at, at Molten Ventures. I guess the kind of couple of other interesting things about Forward, one is that we really try to set ourselves apart from other VCs with how helpful we are to our founders. So we run what we call a studio team, which is a small agency we run on behalf of our portfolio companies to help them succeed. And the second thing is that we took the slightly unusual decision to list ourselves on the stock market, London stock market in 2021. So we're a listed VC firm, which gives us a platform to innovate more than in a traditional GPLP structure and also gives us permanent capital. Fab. How easy was it to do the IPA? It's probably one of the hardest things I've done, Dom. <laughs> As you were doing it, were there times where you thought, why are we doing this? Oh, well, let, let me tell you about the very first IPO pitch I did. So when you start to think about IPOing your business, the first step you take is you go and meet with a bunch of potential brokers who might take you to market. And then you select a broker. And then the first thing the broker does is they organize a test roadshow for you where you meet with sort of five to 10 potential IPO investors and you have conversations with them. So we're thinking of listing in six months. If we do that, might you invest? That's your market test. And enough, if enough of them say, yes, we'll put some money up, then you push ahead and do the whole thing. If not, you put it on pause and fix whatever you need to fix to get your business to the point where they will invest. So I'm ready to do the, the first pitch and I won't name the, the investor, but they're, they're famous for being for being difficult. You know how sometimes when you are pitching your business, investors are like, they just ask all the tough questions, they cut across you, they don't let you get into your own rhythm or tell your own story. So so this investor was famous for being like that to the extent they warned me three times before I, any big investor as well, prominent, uh, well-respected. So a good one to be speaking to, but they warned me three times before I spoke with with them that that this is what they're like. So then I I get on I get on the and this this is now when is this happening? This is November 2021. So we're on Zoom, and so this is my first IPO pitch. We're on Zoom. It comes up, and the investor says, "I'm sorry, I'm working from home. They don't allow us to have our cameras on," which is tough enough. And then it turns out the difficult question style is ask questions, and then you give an answer. And then they just just have a massive long pause. So this investor subsequently became an investor in, in Forward, and so I've got to know them well, and they still have the same style. And you know, and I've sat with them in meetings, and you know, they ask the question, and you give the answer, and then they just, just sit, just sit. And so I'm sat and I stood here actually in, in this room where I'm standing now, looking at this screen, thinking, okay, so we're playing the silence game. You know, we know how this goes. You don't want to be the first to break the silence, and so. So I'm sitting, they're sitting, and and then after a while, I'm thinking, crikey, I'm starting like I'm feeling like I'm actually being really aggressive with this kind of prolonged silence that's going on. And I'm kind of, what do we do? So I have to break the silence, and then we kind of repeated this for a little bit. It was a baptism of fire. Well, and also there's also that, uh, are they still there? Am I connected? <laughs> <laughs> and just just any kind of feedback on how this is going got none. <laughs> Oh, very good. So what was, the, what was the, the innovation that you talked about there? You know, the IPO you thought would drive some innovation that would allow you to do different things. What, what are some of those things that, has that turned out to be true? 
So yes and no. So the kind of the theoretical reason behind it is that when you are a, a venture capital firm with a traditional structure, so that's what's known as a GP LP structure. So what that means is that the investors are investment investors in a limited partnership, which is a separate legal vehicle from the fund managers, the VCs, who are employed by the general partner. And then the general partner has a contract with a limited partnership to, to manage the fund. And that has fees and that's where the carried interest flows. And so when you have that structure, because there's differential ownership between the two, then that makes innovation very difficult. Because if, if the manager, the VCs are innovating down in the general partnership, it's not clear that the, the benefit accrues to that to the general partner, not to the limited partners. You know, you increase limited partners to the extent it flows through to investments. But if your innovations are, have a five or 10 year sort of gestation period, then that's going to be too late. The, the whole structure really mitigates against innovation. Whereas when you change to a company, then it's like any company, you know, all, all stakeholders are shareholders in a single vehicle. If you want to innovate, you take it to the board. The governance as to whether the innovation is working or not comes through the board. And so we wanted to unlock that. And specifically, the reason that we wanted to do it was, and this is, well, this is where we get to exactly the yes and no part. So we had begun launching a, an additional business to run alongside our venture capital equity investment business, which was a, a revenue-based finance business. So we were providing a kind of novel form of debt to early stage e-com and SaaS businesses. And doing that inside the traditional structure was impossible. We started to do it at a small scale by a, a kind of a legal hack. But in order to scale that, we needed to get into a single company and the IPO allowed us to do that. However, unfortunately, that business didn't survive the the ups and downs of the, the kind of pandemic and the economic crash that we saw subsequently. So, but that, but that, you know, that ability to continue to innovate, I think, will be very powerful and and will allow us to win in the long term over over other VC funds. Talk to me about how you're seeing the market. So, you know, post COVID, we've had tech valuations hit the floor, and we've seen it much more difficult for startups to raise money. How are you? How is it? How is it from your perspective in terms of access to cash? Have the VCs got as much money as as ever, or are LPs harder to pin down? So, twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two were record years for fundraising for UK venture capital firms. So, there's a lot of dry powder out there. Fundraising this year actually dropped an awful lot in the first quarter, but data I just saw actually two weeks ago out for the second quarter showed that it's picked up. So, if things, uh, if we finish the year at the current you know, like if, if the second half of the year matches the first half, then this year will be kind of two thirds of the capital raised last year, which is still pretty big by historical standards. So UK VCs are doing okay. There's a bit of a difference by stage. So it's a late stage, which has been hit hardest as it were. But yeah, I think overall there's enough capital around for VCs for sure. And that end stage harder. So just that bridge between into final profitability. Yeah, bridge into final profitability. So what will that mean? Yeah, I think it means companies will grow slightly, you know, as they get bigger, will grow a bit less aggressively, get to, you know, pursue profitability a bit earlier, maybe exit a bit earlier, maybe IPO a bit earlier. I mean, we'll see these things are going to play out over, over the next five years, obviously. And is the cycle in the UK slightly different to the US or do you think that we're pretty aligned at the minute? I think we're pretty aligned now. Historically, there used to be a six month lag or something but I, I think that's pretty close these days you know and a lot of the US VCs are investing heavily here and post Brexit what's that meant to your view of do you only invest in the UK 
yes, we only invest in the UK. And was that true pre-Brexit or has that always been true? And It's always been true. Like as an early stage investor, investing in companies which are proximate to you geographically just makes a massive difference. You know, they're the kind of help you need to be given companies. It's just much better when you can get in the same room rather than trying to kind of do stuff over phone calls or Zoom. And, you know, we've got mutual friends that can maybe help out and so on. Okay. And the studio, that would be, I'd love to dive into this a little bit. So I guess what you've done is you built some help around what you see as the common challenges. And so what what do you see some of these common challenges that startups face? So we break it into three areas, raise, find and grow, we call them. And so the biggest of those is it's find, helping people find talent for their uh, for their startups. And at the early stages where we invest, there's a real the real market inefficiency in the provision of recruitment services. You know, these small businesses, so picture kind of one to maybe 30, 40 people, they are they are difficult for recruitment firms to work with. And so the you know the, the biggest and best recruitment firms charging fees, which are way more than you know your startup wants to pay at that level. And 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 as a result, you know, CEOs are left, and you must have seen this, you know, CEOs are left working with recruitment firms who you know, fire them, fire them CVs indiscriminately, don't treat candidates very well. And so there's a real, A, there's a real problem, you know, and all the surveys show that startups, you know, the two biggest challenges for startups, the right is across stages are getting the right people and getting the right money into their businesses. And so A, there's a problem and B, as a VC, what's nice is that when we call candidates, they take our call, right? Like oh, there's a VC firm calling, I'll, I'll speak to them. Whereas if they get a call from a startup they haven't heard from, heard of before, they're much less likely to do that. And similarly, if they get a call from a recruitment firm, you know, most good candidates are not taking those calls either these days. Yeah, I, I, I find it all the way through recruitment to be a challenge. It, you know, even in large firms, if I have the executive team in a room and I say, which of you in this room has received any training on hiring? Everybody looks sheepishly at each other hang on, you've just said this is the most important decision that you're going to make in your business. And I've just asked you how often you think you get it right. And it's about half the time. So frankly, you should just get 10 CVs and toss some coins, right? Because you are doing it badly enough that chance is about where you're at, you say. And well, what are we going to do about it? And they, they all then just look at the HR, head of HR or chief people officer. And it's like, no, what? it's like, this is this is the most, you know, often this is your biggest cost. This is your biggest point of leverage. It's it's just incredible how businesses just continue to not fix it and get it really, really good. Yeah, and it is tough. Like it's tough to get good candidates to find good candidates to speak with. It's tough to screen them. It's tough to convince them to join, and and all of that takes a lot of time. And and you know, this is one of the things, particularly for early stage CEOs, like how much time do you put into it? Like, you know, if you really want to do best practice, then you're like, okay, it's time to hire a, I don't know, chief revenue officer. Let's assume I'm a technical founder, so I'm doing this for the first time. That is going to go horribly wrong. So often that goes horribly wrong because they they end up hiring somebody who's not salesy. They have this distaste for the word sales. So they hire a chief revenue officer who isn't a salesperson. And they're like, why did that not work for the third time in a row? A couple of common value things. That's one. And then the other is, they're going, okay, so I get that I need someone salesy. And then they, they find a sales person who is who's really good at selling themselves. 
that turns out to be pretty poor at actually selling. And they land on a big pitch and, you know, and it takes six, nine months to work out and they're good at selling up and they, you know, the pipeline's building, there's big deals that are about to close. And so, you know, you end up losing six, 12 months. Also, there's a, there's a stage thing, which I think, again, trips people up. So in a startup, don't have any processes. So not only do I need somebody who can sell, but I need somebody who can create some order out of the chaos and build a process. And so often people have been successful in a bigger company and they didn't design the process. They just executed the process. And nine times out of 10, that person couldn't build a process from scratch if, if the hair was on fire. So they might actually be quite a good salesperson, but they're just in the wrong, they're in the wrong job at the wrong time. You know, you want to hire them three years from now, not today. And again, people don't understand that sort of, you know, is this a startup? Is it a scale up or is it, is it a more mature business? And for every job, it's like, have we got the right person in the phase? Yeah, because a a common mistake, another common mistake is arrived from a company, had a successful sales track record, and I'm just going to implement the same process that worked for me before. Whereas you need to think, just, just, you know, like, what what product are we selling here, right? Like, is is the the selling price, you know, the kind of average selling price the same? Is the sales cycle the same? You know, do I need an outbound sales team, which is going to out meeting people for, you know, I don't know, 100K plus type deals? You know, kind of have an inside sales team if the deals are kind of 50k, and then then it's working the phones is a whole other thing. Or do I need to drive this 90% on sales sign up because the same, you know, the average selling price even lower. So that needs working out. And also, there's the kind of the process of just getting everything out of the founder's head and into some kind of playbook so everyone can know what are they, what are they, how do you handle kind of common customer objections? What are the main selling points? All of that sort of stuff. Totally. Have you know interviewing that candidate? It's like, have you written a playbook? Can we see a two or three you've done before? And again, nine out of ten people just look at you completely blankly because that was somebody else's job in the company they were last in. What's good about the venture ecosystem in London now, UK now, which manifestly wasn't true. I don't know, ten years, twelve, maybe ten years ago, starting to be true. Twenty years ago, when I started in this game, not is that there's been enough, you know, more than enough successful startups now that there are people, lots of people who have taken companies from naught to 10, from 10 to 20 sales and so on. And so you can, you can find those people now. And a lot of them still kind of, you still got to test whether they're flexible enough to think from first principles, whether what they did before is going to work this time around and all of that. But, but you know, there are people who've done it. So that chief revenue officer, it's a very important title for a man with no people in an early stage business. But anyway, notwithstanding that, that's often one of the first big hires, you know, because we've got the, somehow the founders have persuaded some people to buy a thing and, you know, they've got, they reckon they've got product market fit and now we need to do significantly more sales. And so that revenue driving person is key. Yeah. Yeah. Growth is, growth is absolutely key. You know, if you sensed a bit of a kind of pause there from me, it's, it's because for a lot of companies, you know, the CEO, the founder is really the chief salesperson until they get through 10, maybe up to 10 million in turnover. And so you might be definitely hiring salespeople to give you leverage and maybe you call one of them a chief revenue officer, but you know, the founder's driving it. I bet you get lots of pitches from people where the CEO could not be the chief revenue officer to 10 million. And so is that one of the things where you go, like the team, like the product. I just don't think the dynamics are right here. And I don't think you could execute this to 10 million. You want somebody else to do it and it needs to be you. Yes. Yeah, yes, definitely. So assessing the go-to-market is, is how we think about this. And it's tough. Like at the very early stages when we invest, so we invest when companies typically got between maybe two and 15 people. 
And so the pre-revenue, pre-half of them pre-revenue, the other half have got some early revenues. But, you know, how do sales scale? How do revenues scale is, is, is a key question. And, and is this team going to be able to do it, right? So we assess founders. We've developed, it sounds a bit grander, so we call it a proprietary framework, which it, which it is. And there's four components to that at the high level. So Kittle, competence, insight, drive, and leadership. And then we kind of go into a bit more detail under each of those headings. And we assess all of all of the new investments we make on that basis. We compare them with our existing portfolio companies. And so, like, you know, how are we going against averages across our portfolio? And that, and the reason that we've done that is that it's, it's enabled us to have much, much richer conversations about founders than than I was ever had ever able to have before. Because we say, okay, so you think this person is strong? Why are the, the insight? This is a common pattern for us. Like the insight into the market is is just amazing, and and we go, okay, cool. So you're going to give them a five for insight, maybe. So let's look at the other fives in that portfolio for insight and say, are they really as good as this person? So you can kind of make that conversation real. Then previously we were stuck in it. And I think the founder's great. Well, I'm not so sure. And I'm not going to go, well, okay, I've been doing this longer than you. And so we do think about that a lot. One of the, and then when, when we look across the portfolio and see, well, what are the, what are the, is there any pattern to which founders are successful? And one of the successful patterns actually is scoring five for insight. It's a really deep understanding of the problem and the customer. But maybe so, you know, sales sits in within the kind of like within leadership, it's where we put charisma and and so part of your sales ability is there. And then can you run a really good process side of things sits in 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 the competence bucket. But, you know, we have people who are scoring five on insight and maybe three on leadership and maybe four on competence, three or four on competence. And in that profile, where we've paired them with a strong chair, that's that's turned out to be very successful. So we look at that and think, okay, you know, are they going to be able to drive the early sales? And typically, if you've got the deep insight, like you'll have seen this pattern as well, like, you know, may not be a great salesperson, but customers love to speak with them because they are the expert on the subject, right? So if you can get in front of, you know, if you can get into the deep conversation, then then customers end up buying. And you're right. They don't have that typical instant rapport skill. They might be a little bit nerdy and a little bit socially awkward, but that deep expertise is somehow that social awkwardness can be endearing, right? And with a deep passion for solving the problem, it comes off really, really well. It's I think it's the uh they're playing both the role of sales and sort of pre-sales technical person all wrapped up. And later on, you know, you're splitting that up and you're saying, I'm gonna have a sales guy who can build rapport and trust and i'm gonna have a technical guy who people believe in yeah yeah exactly and you know when but when you're selling those very first customers so there's this crossing the chasm metaphor more but you know so when you're selling those early adopters they're people who've got the problem right and then they've been searching for someone who actually understands it and then you rock up and you understand it uh, and they go wow okay cool somebody gets me i'll take a chance with this product and you know and, and and that deep insight profile really helps make those sales when you start to get into crossing the chasm, it's like people think, well, I know you've got this problem, you might not have quite woken up to it yourself yet. That's that's where you kind of, the profile changes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you said you partner that type of founder up with a great chair. So what's the chair bringing for you to make this the dream team? They are bringing, it's mostly coaching, I suppose, at the end of the day. It's mostly coaching the CEO to say, when do you need to step out of the kind of, you know, the kind of the expert persona, the person that everybody speaks to because because they're the expert, because they're brilliant, is a little bit different to the persona who 
makes people kind of creates demand in the first place. You know, it's a little bit what we were just saying a second ago, I guess. And so kind of the coaching of like, okay, so when is this working? When is this not understanding those gaps? And then, then you do need to hire that chief revenue officer who can maybe, you know, open the doors, which then the, the founder then is brought in to, to help sell, you know, close the sale or certainly key steps in convincing the customer that they really should be buying. Yeah, chair can be really helpful in, in making that hire well, right? Because they're bringing part of that experience. Often some pattern matching on a couple that had uh, strong technical backgrounds, academic backgrounds. And so they're also given help in coaching really and how do we scale the business? What sort of people do we want to be hiring? It's just similar, similar to the stuff you're doing, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. well, I was, I was just thinking it sounds very similar. And I guess, I suppose I started off on this, you know, not having a proper job life, doing non-exec work and doing that. I just found... A, I didn't have the frameworks and the skills and B, the way in which it was set up in board meetings, just don't make me go to a board meeting. I mean, they're just not very exciting very often. So let me put my skills to work in another way. So then it's like, okay, I'm not going to call myself a non-exec or a chair. I'm going to say I'm a coach. I'm just going to do that. And so that's similar things, but focused on where I get the most joy and add the most value. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of the most important work happens outside the board meeting for sure. What else have you got in your, what else goes wrong that you're hoping to either spot beforehand so we don't invest in their business or we know this is likely to be part of a successful journey and we lean in? So one of the amazing things about investing in early stage startups is is how much founders grow and develop as, as the business grows and develops. And it's, you know, like it's one of the most profound learning experiences I think anybody can go on is, is setting up their own company. And you're looking for someone who is going to be able to to embrace that and, and really grow and learn. And what's hard is, you know, like if you're investing when a company is a couple of years old, you can see that where the founders got to at that point, you can see a little bit, maybe if you've known them for a year or so, you can see the trajectory they've been on. When you're investing right at the early stages, you're trying to make this assessment of like, are they, you know, are they going to be able to get on this curve or not? And so we look at what they've done in the past, even if it, you know, I mean, most obvious if they founded a company before, okay, that's pretty straightforward. But if not, you know, we look for what we call master events. So what have they done in their past where they've really kind of stepped out and done something which was difficult given, given the context of their background? So, you know, like if you end up, if you went to a top public school and, and then ended up being captain of the football team at, at Cambridge or something, that's nice. But it's nothing like the same as if you came from a much more difficult background and just making this up and we haven't got one of these examples, but, you know, came from a more difficult background, you know, and ended up partnering a major law firm at the age of 29. You're going, okay, that's much more real, right? Okay. There's somebody who has unexpectedly achieved. There's something about them. A really classic path. And I guess, you know, if you, you know, and, and if you started sort of higher up the curve as it were then then kind of looking for a little bit more like you know like you know maybe you had a side project that was really interesting whilst you were kind of learning to be the law you know becoming the partner of the law firm or something right you'd look for a little bit more so we had one guy actually another guy in the portfolio who was a lawyer and alongside that he'd been building businesses buying and selling things on amazon effectively doing some clever stuff automating supply chains out of china and we're going okay yeah so that kind of gives you a, a sense maybe I often look at people's CVs and I think, oh, you've been a swimmer. Brilliant. You know, you've got up at five o'clock in the bloody morning every single day for a long time. Love that about you. 
haven't met you yet already, I like the fact that you will grind your way through something. I hate it when I when I fall in love with the candidate on the CV and then they turn up and they're very disappointing. I hate that. That's the, just because at that point I just wanted them to turn up and be good enough to be hired. You know, just what are their characteristics? I was actually talking to a CEO the other day and we were looking at some prospective candidates for one of his senior leadership roles. And he said, I need the people who work for me to work 50 to 70 hours a week, right? They don't have to do it all the time, but it's got to be there. And so he was looking at this person's CV. He's going, I don't think this person works that hard. I'm just, you know, not getting that vibe from their CV. Whereas, you know, the guy was automating Amazon supply chains. You know, he's not sitting watching Netflix. He's doing something else. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's an intensity to life in a startup, you know, isn't there? You've really got to have that drive. And, you know, so endurance sports, take drive, it's a really good sign. Or big side projects, you're looking for a lot of passion. Yeah. What else is this secret sauce? How many, just out of interest, how many pitches a year do Ford partners get? So four and a half thousand last year. And they're just the ones you get. I mean, I mean, people who you just go, don't send me that deck. No, please. I don't want to see you pitch. Okay. Oh, well, so we don't we don't meet that many. So we meet, we meet the top 10% of that. So we meet about... 400, 450. Still a lot of people, right? And then of, so four and a bit thousand, 400 you meet, how many do you invest in? Uh, Four to eight. So it's a really, you know, it's a funnel which is wide at the top and incredibly narrow at the bottom. And you said actually earlier, you said there was no access access to capital problems. So I was going to say, could you invest in more? And so that's like 1% of the ones you meet from your perspective are investable. And if you'd met more investable people, you'd invest more. Or is there a limit to how many you can take on in a year given the size of the business? Yeah, yeah. So four to eight is, is it works with the current size, you know, like uh, we could scale that up to, I don't know, maybe 12 to 15, but that would, that's where it would start to max out, I think. But that requires bigger team and, and just more scale than we have currently. Of the 4,000, have you got any sense of how many of those actually get invested or maybe even the 400? Like, you know, you're investing in 1% of the ones you meet. Uh, do the other 400 that you meet, do they all get funded, do you reckon? No. I would guess, uh, how many seed stage companies, seed and pre-seed companies get funded in the UK each year? Actually, you know, like so I haven't I haven't got that stuff in mind, but intuitively it's it been a kind of 300 zone. So maybe, you know, so, you know, we're not seeing every one, right? So maybe, you know, maybe half of the 400 we see get funded one way or another. That's a complete guess, but yeah. Okay, no, that's fine. I, I just, you know, in my mind, I, I had no sense of how many people are looking for money versus how many people find them. I suppose I end up talking to the people who who survivors bias. But I'm never talking to the people who don't get to raise money. Yeah, it's and what's really hard for founders, I think, is you know people write a lot of blog posts about their successful fundraising, and and if you get it right, and your company's hot and your pitch is good, then the process runs very smoothly and very easily, and that leaves a lot of founders with an incorrect impression of how the process looks for the for the vast majority, which is you just got to tough it out. You've got to hustle hard, find intros to kind of 60 VCs potentially, write a good deck, have a good pitch, build relationships with them before you even start the process. And and just, just it's a lot of shoe leather. You know, you're selling, it's, it's a sales process, right? You're selling equity in your business and you've got to think of it in the same way as, as selling your product in many ways. And how does your business model work? 
So you're doing four to eight investments a year. How much equity are you buying? For what sort of stake are you putting in and how much is it costing you? And then what does success look like over what time frame typically? We invest 200K to 2 million in the first bite. And, you know, most of it clusters in the sort of 500K to, to 1, 1.2 million. And stakes sort of 5 to 15, 20%. And then we're working with these businesses for, for up to 10 years or more. You know, so as a business, we both know makers. We've been in them for 11 years now, something like that. The first ever edition of The Melting Pot was their office. Yeah. Oh, amazing. There we go. How long have you been in there? 11 years. Well, um, yeah, so 11 years, yeah. Fab. And so how many exits have you had? It could be not very many. No, yeah, it's it's not not a huge number. So like kind of decent exits where we've got proper sort of seven-figure cash back. I think we're in the sort of five, something like that, that sort of range. But, you know, as a very early stage investor in a firm that's that's 10 years old, we're still waiting for the big ones to come, most of them. Yeah. Okay. What do you do when you think it's not working? Do you just write it off, stop bothering to try, or so you can focus your attention on the ones that you think, you know, how often have you got it wrong? I suppose there's the, is there, because often people are saying, well, VCs invest and they, 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 they're professional at it because it's sort of this internal innovation conversation I have with clients all the time. You know, they'll say, right, we're going to put a million pounds into an internal innovation project. And I go, just one project. And they go, yes, we're going to decide what the right one is and we're going to put a million pounds in. And I go, look, these are the people in the world called VCs and they do this pick projects and teams professionally and they get it right. You know, they get an oversized outcome one in 20 times, but they've got 400 as we were talking about. They've got 400 and they're picking one. You've got one project and you're saying, we guarantee that this is going to be a success. It's like, you're on a hiding to nothing. So I guess maybe if it's not the one in 20 is the flyaway success. How often do you reckon you get it wrong and it's just a bust? So our model, when we set up forward as a pre-seed and seed stage fund, it was 50%, 50%, you know, total write-offs are very close to it. Where I came from before was more like a third. Like, so for later stage funds, you know, series A fund, a third, a third, a third is the kind of the industry benchmark, you know. And for earlier stage funds, I think those benchmarks are, are kind of less clear. The whole pre-seed, institutional pre-seed market is just not old enough yet really to have those benchmarks. So fifty. So what we what we thought was when we set up was fifty percent write offs. A third we make some returns, but not huge. And then a, a sixth, the final sixth, we get kind of ten x plus. And and we're tracking pretty close to that. I think that's interesting. Then because again, one of the things I see taking the VC thing and thinking about corporate innovation, which is often one of the challenges that I'm helping clients face, is that fifty percent write off thing is absolutely terrifies them. Because they're trying to use the same ROI calculation that they do on something that they know is going to work. And it's like, if this is innovation, you do not know if it's going to work. If you know it's going to work, it's not innovation. It's just an ROI calculation. That's not the same thing at all. If you're saying you're trying to you know, have a standout innovation in your business or breakthrough innovation and say they can't get their heads around at all that we're just going to have to write it off. You're taking that approach, which is, you know, we're putting in 200,000 to, you know, half a million or maybe a million and you're staging the payments over time? No? No, no, we, we did used to do that at the beginning, but, but the market's moved on now. And so, yeah, so the, the you know, all the money goes in upfront. And, you know, and then we do make, we do make follow-on investments. And, and if the company's successful, the follow-on investments can be a multiple of the, of the original investment. So you've got that concept, which is, here's the money. You said you're going to do a thing. If you do a thing, there might be more money. Yeah, fab. Yes. Although the 
crucially though when if we're going to put more money in we want somebody else to be coming along and, and pricing the round we don't want to be mocking our own homework okay that makes sense nick what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier so one of the really interesting questions for i think for all of us is is uh, where does that drive come from and, and that is something that took me till i was about 46 to to figure out i'm 50 now and and it turns out that, that what drives me is, well, and as I get to this, it's actually a little bit personal, So, but I'll do it quickly. So when I was young, I was kind of a bit socially awkward. I was a big kid. I fought at school. It was not, it was, it was like quite tough. And, and I made like a decision at some point, like I need to get away from that. Like, and so when I was kind of in my teens, I kind of made a conscious effort to, to start working on all this stuff. And so I've always been on this massive self-improvement vibe which is you know i've really a really enjoyed it and b i think it's really helped me you know you and i have talked about this over the years but uh, it's only it was only actually with the help of uh, the shaman in africa which is a whole other story that (laughs) you don't like yourself nick and i'm like what i think that's wrong like i actually worry that i'm a bit smug and and she said no yeah and she kind of persuaded me of that over a couple of days and and that kind of like a really there's a part of me that i didn't like this it's, you know this young nick if you like and and when i realized that i was like oh, okay so you need to change that right because i was harsh to myself and as a result which is you know that's cool like i've got a high tolerance for discomfort and i push through stuff and get things done right and that's super helpful but because i was harsh on myself end up being too harsh on other people like like why are they not just digging deep and being superhuman and all the rest of it right and and so that kind of once I figured that out about myself, it made me a much better leader, ultimately, much better able to work with other people and, and really help get the best out of them. And like yourself a bit more. And like myself a bit more, yeah. Yes, but that even really realizing I didn't. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's been cool. I think that's fascinating. But then, but you said that was 46 and we were just chatting before we, we pressed record about the episode about the Modern Elders Academy and that sort of peak unhappiness at 47. And okay, so it's, you know, 46, 47, it's all the same, isn't it? It's that, you know, I need to go find out something about myself. And Nick, what books do you think people should read? Either connected to this or that you've just been, you know, on your sun lounger reading through in the last few weeks. What? So there's a book called The The Great CEO Within. What is it? And there's the subtitle is The Tactical Guide to Company Building. And it's just a really practical guide to building a startup. It's written by a guy called Matt Mashari, who's a coach in startup CEO, mostly Series B startup CEO coach in, in San Francisco. And it's just very, you know, he calls it a tactical guide, it's very practical advice across everything from like, you know, how do you run a meeting? How should you set up your stock option scheme? How should you set up your company wiki, your company kind of to do that? And it's really kind of helpful, practical advice. And you can set up as a series of chapters. And so, you, do, you know, it's not a business book we have to read start to finish. It's one we as a, as a reference guide, if you like. Super helpful. I've given it to all the founders in our portfolio, um, and you know, got three copies of it here in my <laughs> office now. And yeah, so that's a super good book. And uh, he's actually so he's building out a network of coaches now. A friend of mine is now working for him, and uh, and so people can access that as well. But I think you know, it's it's a really helpful guide. You know, it might be interesting for you to yeah yeah yeah. I'll have a read, and certainly I've got some people I can immediately think would get value from reading that. Fab. What else you got on your shelf? Is there another couple we can? Yeah, yeah, two more. So the other one, a book a lot of people have been talking about recently is, is Breath by James Nestor. So getting into to nasal breathing, looking after your breath, 
Do you tape your mouth up at night? I did do that for a little bit, yeah. And now I don't snore. Fiona, my wife's much happier. And yeah, less less cold, sinus infection. It's a, bit, it's a powerful thing. Better exercise. Uh, yeah, so recommend that one. Very interesting. And then the final one I'm going to go point think about here is I'll talk about is a book called Thanks for the Feedback by by Douglas Stone. It's one that so we've all read as a management team at, at Forward. And being good at giving feedback is something which gets a lot of attention. But being good at receiving feedback is is also a really critical skill. And so one of the things we've tried to do at Forward is, as well as focus on helping people being able to give good feedback, get people better at receiving feedback. Because if people are really good at receiving feedback, then you know, then you can just let it flow more naturally. You don't have to wait until people are ready to receive it. I'm just thinking about Nick pre-Shaman in Africa. And I'm just thinking you might not have been a person that people wanted to give much feedback to, right? Because people might be really good at giving feedback, but if somebody looks at the shows up in a way where you go, they don't want my input, it takes a certain person to push through that. And so that if you show up the right way, you get way more feedback. I haven't read the book, but I will put that on my list immediately. I like that. Yeah. And well, what's interesting in it is it's like what stops people from hearing the feedback that, that they're receiving and what stops you from hearing the feedback that you're receiving. And so as well as kind of stopping the feedback, even getting to you in the first place, as you know, and one of the ways that people stop feedback getting to them is they get triggered by it and go, oh, I tried to give them a bit of feedback once and it didn't go very well. So I'm going to try that again. We're also wired with this sort of anti-dissonance thing. Say so if I'm hearing something I don't want, I don't like, I immediately either forget that I heard it or, you know, in my brain, make it not a thing I need to pay attention to. Shoot the messenger. Yeah, exactly. Why is this feedback nonsense? This feedback's hurting me. Why is this feedback? Well, the person who's giving it to me is an idiot for whatever reason, right? Like they're, they're not qualified. The feedback's not fair. They've got an agenda against me. All, all these things that, you know. And so if you have those in your own mind as both as the receiver and giver of feedback, then you're able to navigate that stuff more often. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.